The reading comes from Revelation chapter 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. We're excited that you're here. Um, <clears throat> before I, I jump into the sermon, I wanted to um, acknowledge and pray for all of the stuff that's going on all over the place. Um, and I really... Uh, didn't have the words for it myself, so I'm going to read a prayer um, that my friend Eugene Cho, who's a pastor up in Seattle, he wrote this um, the other day. And so if you will join me in, in just lifting up our world and all that's going on. Lord God, in our coming and going throughout this day and the weeks to come, help us to pause, to remember, to lift and pray for those in harm's way. We pray for those impacted by earthquakes, hurricanes, flooding, and wildfires. For those in Mexico, Houston, and Texas, Caribbean islands and nations, Florida, Bangladesh, India, Nigeria, and the Northwest. We pray for those who are fleeing away from persecution, oppression, and violence. We pray for the Rohingya people as they flee for their lives. We pray for refugees throughout the world who long for peace and to return to their homes. We pray for those who are fearful and anxious about the repeal of DACA. We pray for the homeless in our neighborhoods and cities, forgotten veterans, single moms and parents, orphans and widows. We pray for teenagers and adults alike who are contemplating self-harm or the taking of their lives. Lord, give us eyes to see that each person is created in your image. As we pray, please expand our heart for our neighbors, both near and far. May our hearts be overjoyed for the things that, you, that give you joy, and may our hearts break for the things that break your heart. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. So, we're beginning today a six-week dip into the book of Revelation. It's a little teaser, a little taster, hopefully enough to whet your appetite and not scare you away from ever reading the book again. A few, a few years ago, a church I know went through Revelation for 28 weeks. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, it was actually really instructive and insightful, but I recognize that, at least at a first take, that this you know, dip, jumping into Revelation may not seem particularly appealing. So I want to start by asking you to turn to your neighbor for a couple minutes, you know this is coming, and come up with two words, okay? One word to summarize the content of the book of Revelation, as far as you understand it, or as far as you've heard, and the second word to describe how you feel about the book of Revelation, how it makes you feel, okay? One word to summarize the content, one word to summarize how you feel about it, all right? A couple minutes, Th actually, maybe just a minute, you're just coming up with a word, so... So let's start with one word to summarize the content. What, have you, what did you get? What you got? Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Yeah, okay. What else? Ending. Ending. Something over here. Horsemen. Horsemen. <laughs> Anything else? Misunderstood. Misunderstood. Fantastical. Judgment. Judgment. Overboard. Overboard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, what is a word to summarize how you feel about the book of Revelation? Okay. Thank you, JR. What else? Uneasy. Confused. Scared. 
skeptical. Outlier. Anyone else? Scurred. Scurred. <laughs> That's good. I'll, I'll close it with that one. We'll, we'll just close it with that one. Uh, so Revelation, it may be the most misunderstood and probably the most avoided part of the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, once described it by saying it was neither apostolic nor prophetic. He said, I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is to say nothing of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. That was Martin Luther's take on Revelation. Noted atheist Friedrich Nietzsche called it the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. And the playwright George Bernard Shaw dismissed Revelation as the curious record of the visions of a drug addict. <laughs> Revelation is also probably the most uh, misinterpreted part of the Bible. Uh, last night, uh, Carolyn and I got back from a wedding in Connecticut, which is really beautiful this time of year. Um, temperature was, you know, just right in the low 70s. The air was clear. I didn't sneeze maybe once. Uh, there's greenery everywhere. Uh, some of our friends drove up from D.C., uh, but we decided to fly to save ourselves a little bit of time. And uh, I was sitting on the plane. I was we were flying up on Thursday, and I was reading um, commentaries on Revelation, reflecting in preparation for a sermon. And this weird sensation came over me because I was recalling one of the opening scenes of a book I read as a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> this book is called Left Behind. How many people have heard of Left Behind? Okay. The rest of you are in for a treat. It is a tragically popular series. There are 16 books. <laughs> there are 16 books in this series. Um, and it was turned into a movie starring Kirk Cameron of Growing Pains fame, and then it was remade into a movie starring Nicolas Cage. I have the same look <laughs> when I think about why did this movie get made again? Um, anyway, the... the <laughs> The scene I was reminded of because I was on the plane is, is what happens at the start of the first book when um, the folks on the airplane vanish because the rapture happens. Um, for those of you who don't know what the rapture is, it's an event that some Christians believe happens that marks the beginning of the end times when good Christian people get a pass from all the terrible things that are about to happen when God pours his judgment and destruction down on an unrepentant world. And these Christians get sort of teleported out of this world and into heaven, kind of like Star Trek, but you never see them again because if you've been left behind, you probably deserve it. That's my summary. And so, so here's a public safety announcement. Please, 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 do not get your theology of revelation from left behind. Several commentaries mentioned, and at least one commentary dedicated a whole segment to left behind and how it espouses a troubling theology. For instance, for me, for a blessedly brief period uh, of, my, of time in my teenage years, I thought the United Nations was a sign of the end. That comes from the books. Uh, and I prayed fairly regularly that God wouldn't leave me behind. And my understanding of why people should believe in God was a fear-driven one. It was basically, you don't want to suffer all of these terrible things and go to hell, do you? And then I got to better know the God of love, one who casts out all fear, but that's another story for another day. This is how theologian Michael Gorman starts his book on Revelation. How one reads, teaches, and preaches Revelation can have a powerful impact on one's own and other people's emotional, spiritual, 
and even physical and economic well-being. And for the next six weeks, we're going to have a look at Revelation. And my hope is that we will all come to a place where the fear and trepidation you may be feeling will be disarmed. The confusion will be clarified. And the words of God to you and to us as a church will be heard and heeded. We're not going to explain everything. We're not going to be able to explain everything, not least because of the time available to us. But at least one measure of success is if we're able to better understand the book of Revelation in particular and to better handle the words of God in Scripture more broadly. My hope and prayer is that we will get to a place where we can summarize the book of Revelation not with words like doom and gloom or fire, destruction, but with words like joy and hope and comfort and clarity. Today, as I'm trying to set the scene for the next few weeks, it may seem a little more heady and more intellectual, maybe a bit lectury, uh, but I hope it'll set us up well for what's to come. Our heading for this series is Beginning with the End in Mind. Beginning with the End in Mind. And we chose that name because as we're still only a couple of months into our new life as Christ City Church, we wanted to look together at where we're headed. The word end can be used in a couple of ways. Uh, there are a couple of words in Greek that can be translated as, as end. The first is eschaton, from which we get the word eschatology. That's the study of the end times. As Christians, one of the things we learn from Revelation is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. No matter what happens before then, no matter how many defeats we may suffer in our lifetimes, the ultimate victory, God's victory over death and evil and sin is assured. It is assured. And yet we live in what theologians call the already but not yet. The already but not yet. It's the in-between time, the time between Jesus' first coming 2,000 years ago and his second coming. See, for the New Testament writers, the end times, it doesn't mark some you know, period at, you know, in 1,000 years from now or 500 years from now. It's everything between the two comings of Christ. We are in the end times now. And 1,500 years ago, they were in the end times. And until Christ comes again, we will be in the end times. It's already, but not yet. And so in one sense, beginning with the end in mind is asking, how then shall we live in this time? This time that we're in. A second word for end in Greek is the word telos, which can be defined as the goal to which a movement is being directed. It's an outcome. For example, if I wanted to head to the White House, I would have to go east. I know that technically, if I go far enough west, I will get to the White House, but it will take a lot longer. Some people got that. <laughs> Thank you. But if I know my destination, I can work out what I need to do to get there. Telos is about where we're heading, not in terms of time or a place on a map, but in terms of purpose, in terms of becoming. We ask this question quite often here, who are we becoming? And that applies not just to you as an individual, but also to all of us as part of this community. And so what we're going to explore over these next few weeks is what Revelation tells us about those two questions. Who are we becoming and how shall we live in this in-between time? Let me step back for a moment. I'm going to start with some basics of biblical interpretation. So this won't even classify as a 101 class. This is like a 
what's less than, like a 001 class? I don't know. But all of this applies uh, to general reading of Scripture, and not just Revelation. So there, there are two parts um, to biblical interpretation. The, the, the fancy theological terms are exegesis and hermeneutics. Exegesis and hermeneutics. And to put it simply, exegesis, which is learning out of, ex, learning out of the text, is basically what the text says. And hermeneutics, which is from the Greek word meaning to interpret, is what the text means. It's a very simplistic uh, explanation of it, but that's uh, one way of thinking about it. Now, in order to figure out what the words of the Bible mean for us, we have to figure out what the words of the Bible meant for them. And by them, I mean the original audience. Because here's the deal. Scripture can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. Okay? Scripture can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. To take Revelation as an example, a thousand years ago, a theologian equated the beasts of Revelation with Saladin, the Muslim leader, and the Pope at the time. 250 years ago, the Revolutionary War was the last great battle, and King George III was the Antichrist. Three decades ago, it was the Gulf War and the peace process in Israel-Palestine, and 10 years ago, uh, Barack Obama was apparently the Antichrist. The thing is, when people do that, when we do that, we're practicing a very self-centered way of interpreting Scripture, as if everything is about us, because it fails to acknowledge the far greater probability, and by far greater, I mean like 100%, <laughs> that the writers were addressing something in their own day. So, because Scripture can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them, we have some work to do to learn what it might have meant for them, as far as it's possible to ascertain that. In order to do this, it helps to know a few things, including the context in which a passage or book was written and the author, the person who wrote it. Uh, if you've ever read a commentary, which uh, is actually a pretty helpful thing to do uh, as you read your Bibles, don't count on us pastors to provide all the information. Um, if you read these, uh, if you read commentaries, you'll find these same, same categories. Um, now, it may seem obvious why those things are important, but let me give an example that stuck in my head from um, one of my early seminary classes. Uh, say someone is installing a piece of art in a gallery, and the curator notices that it's a little crooked. And so she says, you know, tilt that up on the left a little bit. Now, you're not going to go around, hopefully, you're not going to go around tilting every piece of art up on the left a little bit, right? Nor are you going to apply those instructions in some random setting. Say if someone's taking your picture and you're not going to tell them to tilt the camera up on the left a little bit every time they're taking a picture. Because we know the context, we know the setting, and we know the speaker. We know, therefore, how to handle the text, the content, uh, properly. Does that make sense? So the writer of Revelation identifies himself as John. And traditionally, it was thought that it was John, the brother of James, one of the 12 disciples. Um, but commentators are now pretty much in agreement uh, in comparing the revelation with the Gospel of John and the letters of John, both in style and in substance, that it was probably not John, uh, the apostle. Um, so he's usually referred to as John the theologian or John the divine or John of Patmos, which is the island where he's writing from. He says that in verse 9. Uh, Patmos was an island. It was a place uh, where Rome would send their political exiles. And so we can extrapolate some of John's circumstances. Maybe he was sent there because of his faith, his opposition to, to Rome. 
And then in terms of date, some, most scholars would say this letter was written around the end of the first century, so about 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The next thing to look for is genre. Genre is the kind of text it is. Because genre dictates how we interpret something too. A Shakespearean sonnet falls in the genre of poetry, full of rich imagery, hyperbole. Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings falls into the genre of fantasy, where there are mythical creatures and it's set in a world not our own. You read both of those things differently as you would the, the DSM-5 psychiatry manual or any history book. The same thing applies in reading the Bible. You read the New Testament letters or epistles differently from how you read the Psalms, which is a songbook, or how you read the historical narratives of 1 Samuel. And as another example, it makes a huge difference how you read the first chapter of Genesis as a step-by-step -step account of creation, or if you read it as a poem. Genre is key. And most of us have learned most of the time how to distinguish and switch our lenses pretty quickly, pretty instinctively. But Revelation is sort of a hybrid. It's, it's several things at once. And so for the rest of the time I have, uh, I want to unpack that a little because I think that'll be important uh, for setting up the rest of our walk through Revelation. So uh, theologian Richard Bauckham concludes, he writes this, that Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. So I'm done, okay? That's, uh, don't worry if that doesn't really clarify anything for you. That's what we're about to talk about. Um, I'll work backwards since that may be the easiest way to go about it. So it's a letter. It's a circular letter, which is what it sounds like. It's a letter that circulated. Uh, kind of like a chain email, but actually important and, <laughs> and also true. Um, in Revelation 1, verse 4, we can, see that the letter format, the, we can see the letter format that was common in those days. John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you. It's a common format. It was addressed to and would have been read aloud in each of the seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, modern-day western Turkey. So... I don't know how clear it is on the screen, but that uh, bottom left corner is where Patmos is, the island that John was in, and then you can see the, other, the churches as they're spread around. So John was addressing seven churches, which means that he was addressing specific concerns for specific churches in specific situations. He wasn't just offering abstract platitudes to some hypothetical church, but he was talking to local churches, each one probably about 50 to 100 people. Less than what we have here today. That's both humbling and encouraging to me. Revelation 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, are, are often sometimes referred to as the seven letters or the letters to the seven churches, but really the whole thing, all of Revelation, is for them. And for everyone, both specifically and broadly. See, at the same time as, G as John is addressing these specific churches, uh, the number seven in Jewish tradition is a number of completeness, a number that signifies wholeness, like the seven days of the week. And so when he says uh, these, this is for the seven churches, he's also saying this is for the, the church. This is for you, seven specific churches, and you are representative of the whole. And that means that first thing, every, every time you read you in Revelation, it's really you all. And second, it means that there's something there for us too. John has something to say to us, too. 
And that something is a word from God, or it's the words of God, because revelation is also a prophecy. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Uh, yesterday, Ben and I were joking that he would need to read all of Revelation aloud in order to get the full blessing. John, the writer, sees himself standing in the line of the Old Testament prophets, in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. And we know this because, although he never quotes them directly, the book of Revelation is full with allusions uh, to previous prophecies and in the language of prophets. You know, it's really understandable why something like uh, the Left Behind series could have come out of Revelation because prophecy has come to be understood as simply telling the future or predicting events to come, like, like some sort of divine cheat sheet. But as Michael Gorman puts it, the biblical prophets and prophecies were concerned not with speculative foresight, but theological insight. That's what prophets did. They were not concerned with speculative foresight, but theological insight. They weren't saying, watch out, because 2,000 years from now, this, that, or the other is going to happen. But rather, let me tell you what's happening right now, but from God's perspective. Let me tell you what's happening right now. Let me tell you what God would have to say in your situation. That's what Isaiah did, and Ezekiel, and Micah, and Amos, and even Jesus fulfilled a prophetic role. And for, for example, when he called out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, he said, they look all respectable and law-abiding, but really they follow a religion of rules that lead to death. They prize policies and even principles over people. They are farther from the kingdom of God than even the worst sinner that repents. That's the prophetic tradition. It shows God's perspective. It reveals God's thoughts. And that leads us to the third genre of revelation, which is apocalyptic. The apocalyptic literature. Now, some of you mentioned that as the summary, uh, apocalypse is the summary of the book of Revelation. Um, and the word apocalypse has become all about the end of the world. You may think of images of destruction, devastation, uh, examples of you know, post-apocalyptic genre in movies and books and TV are abound. abound. Uh, the Book of Eli, Mad Max, The Hunger Games, Last Man on Earth, The Walking Dead. But here in Revelation, apocalypse is the very first word of the book. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Literally translated, apocalypse means revelation. It means the revealing or disclosure by implication of things that would not otherwise be known. Have you ever had someone say to you, can I let you in on a secret? Or can I tell you something? And usually they have something to tell you that you didn't know before and you actually think is worth knowing. In the New Testament in particular, the term apocalypse is used particularly to refer to a supernatural revelation of a divine truth. And there's some overlap with prophecy here. And so we have the book of Revelation, the book of revealing, the book of God saying, hey, let me tell you something you may not know. But apocalyptic literature is also a very specific genre as well, one that the people of the first century would have been very familiar with. Uh, in the 21st century, we're, we're a little less familiar with it. Uh, one time I was leading a small group, and we were talking about what we would study in the, the next uh, semester, and the group settled on the book of Daniel. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. 
you know, it's Old Testament and you get to dive a little deeper on some familiar stories like Daniel in the lion's den and, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And so we got through those stories and it was, we had some great discussions. Uh, and then we got to chapter 7 of Daniel, uh, which is where the weird stuff starts happening. And uh, there's images and dreams and, and visions that start cropping up. And so after explaining uh, what apocalyptic literature was, um, the last four or five weeks of the small group semester, we were just like, well, we're, we're, I guess we're done with Daniel. And we just f started following the sermon again. So um, it was a huge success. It was, it was one of the highlights of my time as a small group leader. Because it is weird, right? And it can be hard to understand. And so... Briefly, here are a few characteristics of apocalyptic literature, just to help us better understand the genre of Revelation, what's going on. So one thing is uh, apocalyptic literature is often, uh, they're often poetic appeals to the imagination. So poetic, not, not literal, but poetic appeals to the imagination. The Psalms appeal to our emotions, right, our feelings. They express what's going on, but books like Revelation are supposed to be a jolt to our imaginations. And I use the word imagination not to refer to make-believe, uh, but to the way we see and perceive what's going on in front of us. That's how I think about our imaginations. It's not just how, how, well we, how good we are at making stuff up. It's how, how good we are at seeing what's in front of us, at really seeing what's in front of us. Remember, it's God's perspective. So we may only see dry bones, but God sees an army that's about to come to life. We may see only heartache and loss, but God sees the testing and maturing of our character. They're poetic appeals to our imagination. Um, second, as such, apocalyptic literature is full of symbolism. If I were to say to you, in the end times, the donkey and the elephant will lie down together, what am I referring to? Politics. Wow, that was a, was a lot longer than I thought it would take in D.C. <laughs> we're talking about peace across party lines. But that wouldn't quite communicate the same thing in a different context, right? In, in a different country, maybe. Imagine somebody seeing that uh, many years from now, and, and they live in a different country, and they're thinking, you know, what? I mean, animals together? You know? And so to use an example from Revelation, there's a beast in chapter 17 that has seven heads. And John tells us that the seven heads are seven hills. Everyone would have known that was Rome, the city built on seven hills. It's full of symbolism. And third, apocalyptic literature can be characterized as writings for difficult times. Okay, writings for difficult times. Inevitably, it serves as a reminder that good will triumph and evil will be destroyed. As hard as it is to see that or to believe that in everyday life, and because of that, it's supposed to offer hope and comfort to those who need that. And it's supposed to offer a challenge to faithfulness to those who need that. It's intended to answer questions like, how do we live in a world rife with evil? Does God care about our predicament? Will justice finally be found on earth? What happens when we die? Do any of those questions resonate with you? Have you ever asked any of those questions? Have you ever found yourself wondering what is ultimately going on and who is ultimately in charge? If so, Revelation may well be for you. And I hope that's what you find in the coming weeks. Some answers to 
some of your questions maybe, but, but even more than that, maybe some new questions and some divine perspective. See, John was writing to a bunch of Christians who were doing life in a setting and a situation that was not conducive to living faithfully as Christians. For some, they were experiencing pressure and even some persecution for their beliefs and how they lived out those beliefs. And so the temptation for them was to, to back away, to tone it down to, in order to fit in. For others, they were finding that their prosperity, their material blessings, their worldly success was luring them into a sense of complacency and away from a reliance on an interaction with God. But for others still, they were buying into the culture of the day, particularly what was called the cult of the empire. It was not, not just about uh, you know, worshiping the emperor, but about an elevation of Rome and Roman practices into a religion of its own. And they weren't seeing how it was opposed to the gospel. Maybe some of you can see the similarities with where we are. Some of us face the temptation to water down our commitment to faith and to Christ, to stay silent or to duck down. And I'm not just talking about you know, evangelism or, or being willing to share your faith, but also about choosing to speak the truth when it would be easier to tell a little white lie. Choosing to forgive someone who's wronged you when it would be easier to play the victim or to get them back. Choosing to love someone even when they take advantage of you when it would be easier to give them up as beyond redemption. Some of us are finding that the privilege we have, the blessings we've received, the gadgets, possessions, the things that clutter our lives are keeping us from, learning, uh, from, from leaning on and leaning into God. In Proverbs 30 it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, they may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Usually that question is not explicit, but implicit. It's demonstrated by how we live our lives. And then here in the U.S., we have the cult of America. We see an elevation of our country and its practices into a religion at some extremes. Certain symbols and certain rituals are considered sacred, and if you don't do things the way you're supposed to, well, we consider it a sign of greater disrespect than the fact that we condone the levels of poverty and homelessness and incarceration and racism, misogyny, and violence and systemic injustice that we do. This is Michael Gorman again, the syncretism. He says, the syncretism, which is the mixing of different traditions, the syncretism of American civil religion it involves the blending of American ideology and Christian, or at least theistic and quasi-Christian, so something that looks Christian, religiosity. The early church, the church in Revelation, had a natural suspicion of Roman civil religion because it was so blatantly pagan and idolatrous, though even it could be of healing. Contemporary Christians, that's us, can much more easily assume that, that Christian or quasi-Christian, Christian-looking ideas, language, and practices are benign and even divinely sanctioned. And this makes American civil religion all the more attractive, that is, all the more seductive and dangerous. Its fundamentally pagan character is masked by its Christian veneer. One of the challenges for the church in the first century was to remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ in spite of the pressures of a pagan culture. One of the pressures and challenges for us in the 21st century 
is to remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ in spite of the pressures of a culture that looks Christian. It's not for no reason that Revelation has been called resistance literature. Here's the thing. Everything, everything in Revelation, but everything, just everything, must be weighed and measured, convicted, and compared, convicted by and compared to the person and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it, at the end of the day. Our culture, our ideologies, our nation, our commerce, our sexual lives, our personal finances, and our national budgets, our shopping habits, our addictions, our relationships, and our relating. And yes, even our churches must be held up to the mirror of Jesus Christ. The first four words of the book are the revelation from Jesus Christ. Some translations say the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is not just the one communicating the message, and though he is, he isn't just the messenger. Jesus is the author and the subject and the content, not just of the book of Revelation, but of the book of the Bible and of life itself. Our ultimate goal in going through Revelation, as in all of life, is to know Christ better and to become more like him. So it's all well and good for us to get through this and have more information, uh, more knowledge. But my prayer is that we might encounter the living God in Jesus Christ and that every sphere of our lives would be transformed. That we would answer those questions of who are we becoming? And how then shall we live in this in-between time with a resounding call of more like Jesus? That we would become more loving more gracious, more kind, and more merciful, and more aware of how God sees the things in front of us, how God sees the things that are happening to us or around us or inside us. Let me close with this from verse 3. Blessed are those who hear this prophecy and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Those who hear the words of this book and take them to heart. Other translations say keep or heed, listen to. Blessed are those who hear the words of this book, of Revelation, and listen to them. And at the end of John's Revelation, he tells us what this means. In 22 verse 9, he sums it up, and this is, this is, if you want a two-word summary of Revelation, this is it. Worship God. Worship God. In every area of life, in every area of our lives, in every area of our communal life, worship God. In your work and in your play, in your relationships, in your friendships, in your families, Worship God. In groups and on your own, worship God. When, you are, when people are looking at you and when you're alone, worship God. When you're tempted to take the easy route or to forget who God made you to be, worship God. When you become discouraged by the world in front of you 
We're convinced that justice will never arise. We're anxious because you don't know what will happen. Worship God. Do it on Sundays with your church community. Do it in midweek gatherings with your small groups. Do it on your own in your times with God. Do it with your friends when you gather together. But do it every moment in between as well. Every moment of every day, as much as you possibly can, just by bringing God into that moment. And so I want to pray a prayer just for inviting God into a moment. It goes like this. God, this is your moment. This is your day. This is your city and your world. The people I interact with are your image bearers, your creations, your beloved, and I too am yours. May your kingdom come and may your will be done in me and through me, in us and through us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Before the band leads us um, some time of response, I want to invite us actually to stand together and to read this prayer together. So will you join me in praying this? God, this is your moment and your day. This is your city and your world. The people I interact with are your image bearers, your creations, your beloved, and I too am yours. May your kingdom come and may your will be done in me and through me, in us and through us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.